and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now the stud is here. Please welcome the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller and your host Jeff Maldron. Hey everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers hosting another Studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, and sending our best wishes once again, as always, to Jeff Baldwin, who we hope is back hosting this Studcast very soon. You have found the only podcast on the planet which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Get ready for 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Please welcome the originator of of the stud cast and the man who changed the podcasting world with the super stud cast. We step back into the ring and back into time with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, who is here with us this afternoon. What is up? What's going on, Ron? Oh man. I'm just a raring to go, man. No lightning ears. I got to hold him back. We got a great one here today. Big time, big time. Uh, We're going to, we're going to touch a lot of different, areas of wrestling today in this one and we're in a great time frame in 1976 middle of the summer and uh, southeastern is really cranking up it's it's about to become a big name territory around the world so i'm looking forward to it very much and uh thanks for joining me here today dave and uh we'll uh i'm ready when you are my man Hey, that all sounds awesome, but I, I got to mention this, at least going in. Listen, you've been one of everything. You've been an entrepreneur, a legendary wrestler. I think definitely a future Hall of Famer. You've been a territory owner. You are a podcast host. And now, in addition to all of that, you are an author. Is there anything that you can tell us about this? You're writing a book, or is the book already written? What's going on? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the book is actually, it's been released, and I'm pretty proud of it. It's a different. It's a different animal. Literally, uh, it's about a man eating lion and a crazy story, uh, but a good story. You know, and uh, if Jaws scared you and you didn't want to go back in the ocean, man, I mean, uh, this one's liable to keep you from going into the mountains. You know, I'm I'm really proud of it, and I guess I do have another hat to put on now, man. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, I appreciate uh, appreciate the acknowledgement of it and. We're going to try to keep it as wrestling here as much as we can and uh, touch on the author part of it uh, very little if possible. So we want to jump in. uh, I'm about ready when you are, my man. We'll jump right in today. Hey, I say let's cinch it up and let's get her on the road. Lightning's ready. And where are we headed today, Ron? Well, we're going to continue educating today. We're going to take the Studcast fans 
I'm just uh, dead set on making them the most knowledgeable wrestling fans in the world. People are listening to my program. Uh, we're going to do uh, another today's training. And uh, each one of these, uh, we've, I'm trying to do a neat, new type of hat, putting on a different hat, because as you said, I've done just about everything in wrestling. So uh, first, uh, I want to thank those listeners that complimented me and, and, and enjoyed the fact about the, this new segment that we do called uh, Today's Training. And I got some great compliments. And thank you all very much. And I really appreciate it. So last week, <laughs> I was uh, one of the historical wrestlers in the world that wrestled against four Hall of Famers in less than 10 hours. Don't know anybody that's done that before. And I don't think anybody will ever do it again. It's just been overwhelming, though. The great response I've got, uh, it indicates to me that the fans really like this today's training. And uh, we've got a really good training session today. All right. Listen, it sounds awesome. Last week sounded really, really grueling with, as you said, four Hall of Famers in one day in 1973 in less than 24 hours. So what is going on this week? What do you got? Well, this week, for the first time ever in one of these training segments, we're going to put on that Booker hat. And today's training, it's kind of every Booker's dilemma when the NWA world champion comes into the territory as to who the heck is going to wrestle him. You know, well, the territory's full of talent. you got a lot of great talent. And who the hell are you going to put with the champion? So we're going to discuss that today. And, uh, and one of these champions is coming into Southeastern. Just about this time frame, three months after the day we're talking about there today in this program, uh, we're going to have an NWA world champion in Knoxville on a Sunday afternoon. That's going to be Terry Funk. And as a booker, you know, you, you got to prepare for the upcoming world title defenses. And who you put with that champion, it's a critical pick, you know. And you got to get that shot at the champion. Who's going to get it? And that's what it amounts to. Who's going to get that shot? So we're going to find out how the decision is made in today's training. We're going to look at the week, obviously, uh, after we finish today's training. We're going to look at July 9th, 1976, the Knoxville show of that week. And uh, the card of that night, we're going to talk about the TV show that promoted it six days earlier. And we're going to talk about the results of that Friday night card. Uh, we got a great learning tree questions today, actually two of them from the same person. The first question asks, uh, how did you get your wrestlers to behave out in the social scene, bars and et cetera? I mean, that's a good subject right there, you know. And the second one is, did you like your wrestlers interacting with fans? Hmm. So uh, I can't wait to tackle those two. I'll be honest with you, you know, the, uh, I'm looking forward to that. So uh, we're going to have a good show today, Dave. Hey, let's lock it in. We're ready to roll. Okay, so. It's Booker's Day today, by golly. Uh, you know, we've we've done a couple of different deals. Uh, we've done two weeks' worth of these. Uh, once was a wrestler, and we've done everything just about except for being a booker. But uh, it's, like I said earlier, you got Terry Funk coming to town. It's a critical day for every booker when the world champion's going to show up. And Terry Funk is going to defend on Sunday afternoon, October 10th almost exactly three months from the day we're going to be talking about in 1976. And uh, we're going to talk later in the day about all types of different things that happened during that time frame of July, mid-July of 1976. Last time an NWA champion was defending in Southeastern was about a year earlier. It was on a Friday night, November 11th, 1975. 
and Jack Briscoe wrestled Ron Wright. So um, it's been a long time since the champions come to Southeastern. So hold on tight in today's training, folks, because we're going to ride deep into the mind of a booker, by golly. And, uh, and I'm sure deeper than anybody out there has ever been. In fact, I say if there's a current booker that's listening to this show that's in the businesses that are out there operating today, you need to listen to this one. You might get yourself a little lesson here. So we're going to jump right into it. So as a booker, when it comes to opponents for world title matches, the choice is almost always for a babyface. And uh, fans don't usually want a heel to win anywhere in the territory. And they certainly don't want him to win the 10 pounds of gold. <laughs> so mm. so you, you, you cut half of your talent right away, the heels. You don't want to put a heel in the championship match for the world title. So let's start in June of 1976, uh, when I was informed by the NWA office that the world champion, Terry Funk's coming to Southeastern. They gave me the date that he was going to be there, Sunday, October 10th. And as a booker, I had several baby faces to consider. So I decided to eliminate them one at a time. So Ron Wright was the first guy I kind of looked at. Ron Wright's a perennial fan favorite in Southeastern, had been for many, many years long time before I came, as a matter of fact. But I quickly eliminated him because he'd wrestled the last time there was a world champion here, and he'd lost to Jack Briscoe. So it was pretty easy to say that Ron Wright wouldn't be the guy. And I had Jimmy Golden, and I had my brother, Robert, both guys over, both darn good wrestlers, both capable of wrestling a world champion. But Robert happened to be leaving the territory pretty soon. And uh, Jimmy was kind of a tag team guy. He tagged with Rob. He's going to be tagging with Mike Stallings. He's not going to be in a position that I could push him for any shot at a world title. So then I started thinking about Dick Steinborn. He's the Mid-American champion, and he's going to be returning to Southeastern a few weeks from then, this point. He's going to come back, though, as a babyface with a mask on. And he's going to be coming off of an injury. I mean, he got hurt in that Southeastern Slaughter on June the 4th of 76. And he's probably still not fully recovered. So it was going to take some time for him to get back into shape if I decided to use him and get back over again. And he wasn't even a recognized wrestler. He's going to come back with a mask on. So a lot of people are going to have to figure out who is the gladiator, and that's going to be his name when he does arrive. Right. So then it came down to who would have been the obvious choice for most bookers, and God knows that with Bob Armstrong. And Bob Armstrong was getting over fast, no doubt about it. In three months, I knew that he was going to be an extremely hot baby face in the territory, no doubt about it. But right here is where I'd like for anybody that's got a booker's experience to realize that you can fail by making a wrong decision with a guy like Bob Armstrong. And when they put their best baby face against the world champion, they had to figure what that's going to turn out to be. And obviously, <laughs> I don't care who the baby face is and Terry Funk's coming to town, you're not going to beat him. So the baby face that wrestles him is going to get beat and he's going to lose probably in some type of crazy finish. Either way, He's not going to win the match. That's for sure. And then the crowd's going to go home. They're going to be a little unhappy at the end of the match. And when that happens, uh, the baby face that was uh, filling your buildings up uh, has now to, to be rebuilt a little bit. 
any way you look at it, not winning that 10 pounds of gold tarnishes your baby face's image. That's for sure. So after a loss for a fast rising baby face like Armstrong at this point, it would have been a real setback in his development, I thought. And a lot of bookers won't look at it this way. They say, let's put the top guy in there. But what happens to the top guy when he gets beat? So Bob was, in my opinion, far too valuable to sacrifice his potential, his tremendous potential to get one big house and lose to the world champion. (laughs) Now, that's a strange way of looking at it. And most bookers wouldn't take that perspective, but that's the way I looked at it. So I was down then to thinking, you know, I only got one baby face left that could possibly draw a big crowd that could stand to suffer a defeat and uh, and maybe even maintain most of his popularity after that. Mm-hmm. And uh, that baby face also had something none of the other guys I just talked about had. That baby face had a win over Terry Funk, the world champion. And uh, maybe even more important, he had the video to prove it. And uh, that baby face was me. Uh-huh. Aha. <laughs> you, know, you know, so so I'd also had a win over his brother, Dory Jr. So, right. you know, I could take the title shot and I could build a logical storyline around the win, wins over both Funk brothers. And I was coming off an injury. That's a problem. Now, you know, I got hurt, too, in that southeastern slaughter. But I had the necessary time to get in shape. I had two more months or a little more than two months. I also had enough time on TV to get myself enough wins to make it happen. And uh, right then and there, the decision was pretty much made. I had more than two months to get ready. And by gosh, I had my challenger. So Really, it sounded good, Ron, because you had already, as you said, you'd beaten both Terry and his brother. So wrestling fans were thinking, okay, it could happen. Yeah, it makes sense. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, not, nobody else had beaten them. <laughs> Very right. few other guys had ever beat those two guys. So now I'm at a point as a booker, you know, where when now I know who the challenger is, I get all these ideas that start popping into my head. And and I got to thinking right away, you know, what if soon after I return to action, when I get back in the ring, which was going to be, it's only going to be a couple more weeks before I'm going to be back in the ring. I had less begin to talk about the world title two months earlier on TV, you know, world championships coming. Uh, he's pushing the fact, you know, and then uh, maybe somewhere in that early time frame, there's a personality profile and it's built around a discussion about who's the man to face funk. Who's the logical guy, you know, Les could do that on the program and fans would get into it and everybody'd have their own opinion, you know? So about a week later after that, now this is thoughts I'm having. I'm, I'm creating an angle here. That's not going to happen in the ring for more than two months. So I get to thinking then, you know, about a week after that, I get announced as the world champion's opponent. I'm the challenger and uh, Southeastern officials pick me. Week after that, Southeastern shows my victory over Terry Funk and Keel Auditorium, St. Louis, Missouri, 1973. And we're setting a stage here, slowly setting a stage here. We're building toward a world championship match uh, in a way that probably no territory probably had ever done this in this length of time, over a two-month period of time. So then Terry's part of this begins about this point. They've shown me beating him in Knoxville, and he starts sending in these interviews to Southeastern TV, one every Saturday for about eight weeks in a row. 
He cuts these fantastic interviews. All of them are done outdoors. He's either riding a horse or he's uh, he's bailing hay or he's doing something on his ranch. And if he's riding a horse, one of them, he takes a rope and he puts a hangman noose in it while he's talking. And he rides the horse underneath the big oak tree and he throws the noose over the oak tree and he hangs down there and he says, I won't put Ron Fuller's head in this noose and I'm going to choke him till he's dead. Yeah, I mean, Terry's doing the Terry Funk thing and it's getting over, man. So, and then he starts saying on the latter interviews that he just flat out hates me and he doesn't want to defend against me for any reason. I don't want to wrestle that big, tall Tennessee, you know, and uh, it was Tennessee against Texas. We had all these other issues to talk about going on between us. Then he sends one saying that the NWA has agreed with him that if I lose one single match between the day that this interview was shown on TV and the day that I'm supposed to wrestle him, that I lose my shot, that he don't have to defend against me. They have to give him another opponent. Then he ups the game another not. Next week he comes on and he puts a bounty on my head. He says, I'll give any wrestler anywhere in the country or the world that can stop Ron Fuller, that can beat him. That's all he has to do is lose. And that will eliminate him as a challenger for me. I'll give you $10,000 in cash. Wow. So Southeastern stars, they start lining up for the bounty. <laughs> Don Carson jumps in there. Tortanaka jumps in there. Novell Austin jumps in there. Louis Tillet. The new guy that's coming, the big star is going to be huge. The great Mephisto, they all line up for the bounty matches. And every time I beat one of them, it makes me even stronger. It makes me even a better opponent for the world champion. People wow. are beginning to believe over this two-month period of time that I can beat Terry Funk. So ideas just keep coming when you're a booker. Once your mind starts turning, you can't stop it. So then Terry sends, this is a tremendous, now we're going to up this thing again. Terry sends Dory Jr. to Knoxville for the first time ever to wrestle me one month before this championship match. Now, suddenly, these ideas have exploded into a fantastic buildup to a world championship match unusual way of getting to a world championship in this first match that Dory comes to Knoxville one month exactly before the date that I'm going to wrestle his brother I beat him wow and if I lose I'm done you know everybody knows it Ron's lose one match any match anywhere little town big town it doesn't make any difference who the opponent is so he loses the next week he comes back again and for the first time In seven months, we haven't been to the Knoxville Coliseum, and I don't know if fans have paid attention to that as the studcasts go by, but we've been in the park. We're going to the Coliseum because this time Dory's coming back, and we're going to wrestle in his type of match. We're going to wrestle in a Texas death match. And it's only 24 days from the time this match takes place until I'm scheduled to wrestle Terry for the world championship. I beat Dory in the Coliseum. Wow. Now it's Friday, October 8th. I beat a couple of more opponents, uh, Mephisto and, uh, and uh, Tanaka. 
But the, just three days before the title match, the NWA would go on television and when Les and I and Les is saying, Ron, you're, you're it's just amazing. You're going to get there. You're going to beat them all. And then he pulls out this paper and he goes, but I got a notice here for you that the NWA sent this and they wanted me to give it to you this morning that in order for you to get there to the match, uh, which is three days later, you got to fly next Friday to Amarillo, Texas, and you got to wrestle Dory Funk Jr. in a Texas death match in his home of Amarillo. <laughs> I mean, that's like crazy, you know, and, uh, then no, no funk had ever lost a Texas death match in Amarillo, <laughs> right. now, including his father. So it's yeah. like, yeah, I got, I was like, you gotta be kidding me. I mean, what in the world are they trying to do? So, uh, when I get there that night in Amarillo, Terry's in the building and not only in the building, he comes to the ring with junior before the match starts. And he starts into me, man, yeah, that Tennessee, I hate them Tennesseans. And he's just doing his Terry thing. And Junior being Junior stands in the corner very quietly and lets Terry do the deal. And Terry says, you know, uh, it's over for you, stud. (laughs) He really tried to humiliate me. And he's in his hometown. I'm kind of a heel there, you know. People don't know me that well in Amarillo. So it's an odd match. anyway. Me and Junior wrestled in a Texas death match in Amarillo, and I beat him in Amarillo. Not only do I beat him, but the funks are nice enough that they record the match, and they hand me the tape, and I get on the airplane at 6 o'clock the next morning, and I fly into Knoxville, and I go to the television station, and I put it on my Southeastern show. Wow. Talk about a buildup for the world championship. I show them how I beat Dory Jr. in the middle of the ring in Amarillo, Texas, in his own type of match, a Texas death match. And tomorrow at three o'clock in the afternoon, I'm getting Terry Funk's gold. That's incredible. Now, this match was the night before. So you were in the air a good period of time and then headed back to Knoxville for the big match. And finally, and this is after two months of buildup, right? Yeah, two months of buildup, two months of victories over all types of different wrestlers, not just right. those heels that are in my territory, but brought in other territories' heels, big-name guys. So I spent two months wrestling some of the best wrestlers in the world, never got beat, and I have earned my way to the world championship with Terry wow. Funk. And, you know, and I got to say this for Terry and Junior, because I love these guys. I I owe a lot to them for this, their cooperation in this entire three month, basically almost a three month angle. Uh, They didn't have to do this for me. And they did it for me because they liked me and I liked them. And they had respect for me, I guess. And I certainly respected them. And, uh, you know, we created a bond during this this angle here, uh, me and both the Funks. And that bond is going to come to benefit them because in the NWA meetings, and we talked about that a little bit in the last studcast, and one of them in 1980 it was a very contentious matter about two wrestling companies out of Japan trying to both become NWA affiliates. The Giant Baba and the Funks, they were associated with Baba. They got Baba all the American talent. They went over there and wrestled for him regularly. They booked his shows. The Funks were Baba. They were Baba's company. 
Wow. And uh, then Anoki's there, and Anoki's trying to get the NWA to back him. And when it came time to vote, well, you know where my vote went. I owed a lot to the punks. And uh, we still remain best friends to this very day. I talked to Terry and Junior all the time. So this all started in 1976 when we did this angle. So, you know, I hope everyone's kind of enjoyed this look into the mind of a booker. You know, it's it's what made the sport so great back in those days. Uh, Booking and great booking and guys that, that had all these great ideas. And an angle like this that just, it involves everything. It has everything you could have possibly imagined in it. And by the way, the next afternoon, we're going to make wrestling history in Knoxville. That is awesome. Listen, and, and listen, the back and forth exchange between you and every funk that there was in the buildup in the process and the really classy way they handed over a videotape of you winning the night before to play the next morning. That is just an amazing buildup. And, and what a great booking lesson, Ron. I mean, this thing was really well thought out. Well, you know, I appreciate it, you know, and I, I'm a young guy at this point. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm feeling my way through all this booking stuff. And this is my first opportunity to really have a chance to do something with a world champion and to build something around a world champion. And what's really important about these things, it doesn't end at this point. That's just the beginning. Now, some guys, a lot of bookers, they got this big world championship. They built two and a half months for the championship. Right. Uh, they're going to draw a big, huge crowd. And then what happens when I just get beat in the middle? What are they going to draw the week afterward? Right. Then, yeah. So, you know, and I'm a, I'm a pretty sharp kid at this point, and I know what's going to happen. And we're actually going to build upon this big championship match the week after with what we do in the championship. That's so, great. you know, I'm kind of way ahead of uh, a lot of young bookers at this point in my life, yeah. I guess. All right. So you've crossed your T's, you've dotted your I's. It's time for the, the match after this incredible buildup. So what kind of crowd did you have the next day in the Coliseum? Well, I, I appreciate you asking, Dave, but I'm going to cut you off right there. <laughs> Come on. You know, I, no, I think I've given them enough today. You know, I mean, I've kind of laid out a program here and an angle that's going to obviously set record crowd. And uh, at the same time, uh, we're going to get into all this. These stud casts, one great thing about the way these stud casts work is I'm going there and we're going to be there. I wanted to wear the Booker hat today. And right. this gave me a great opportunity and it gave me a great subject because it's something that we're going to all see later on here in the next month or so. Now I want to take us back to that card for Friday, July 9th, 1976 in the July Park Amphitheater. Okay. Uh, opening match on that card on July 9th is uh, Randy Fargo against Don Lambert. Second match is Mike Stallings against Norvell Austin, who's Bill, still being managed by Omar Odell. The third match was Ron and Don Wright battling against Louis Tillet and Don Carson, who is back in the ring, amazingly enough. And we'll talk about that a little bit later about how that happened. So two Southeastern title matches are going to take place in these double main event that night. First championship match is the Southeastern tag title. Rob and Jimmy, uh, the champions, and they're defending against a team that they've never wrestled against, and it's their first time ever. 
and Southeastern as a team, the Von Steiger brothers, Kurt and Carl. The last match of that night is the Southeastern Championship with the challenger Bob Armstrong against the champion, Professor Tor Tanaka, managed by General Homer Odell. And there's a no disqualification on that match. So before we give the results of that card, let's take a look at the TV that was just six days before this uh, Saturday. Okay, six days on Saturday before, which was July 3rd. And uh, this TV show is going to be the one that's going to promote this card. So uh, as a reminder, uh, uh, I think I mentioned it last week, the month of July is a rating month. Television stations all across America. And I was paying particular attention to this fact. And if I hadn't have been the sales manager at the TV station, WBIR, a guy named Len Lepper, he was going to bring it to my attention constantly. Ron, it's rating period. Get us some big cards. So I was jamming things into these TVs in the month of July 1976 because we were doing so well. So he brought me into his office. In fact, uh, two weeks before the month of July started, uh, just to hammer it in me. Ron, you got to make it happen. So the number of homes we're watching on Saturday in July is going to be revealed in these ratings that's going to come out from Arbitron and Nielsen uh, in the month of August. Mm-hmm. So it not only affected Southeastern, my company, to have big numbers, because if I did and the numbers are big, it helps me to expand my market because I can go out and take these figures and these books with me and sit down in any television station and say, look at my numbers. I want to put my show on your station. And when you got up there in a 60, 70, and 80 share, meaning four out of five people that are watching television at two o'clock are watching your product, right? You know, that turns heads. They sit up and pay attention. Okay. So, but it has an even bigger effect, these numbers, on the television station that you're on. Now, this television station is treating me so good. They are spending so much time and putting together so much effort. And we're going to talk in just a minute about the time and effort and just how much they committed themselves to this television wrestling show. So uh, they need this big numbers, too, because, uh, you know, they've got 16 30 second commercials in every program to advertise on. And uh, in the 13 months that we'd been on the air with them after we left the station that was on originally, Their spots started out when we started with them in May of 1975. They were selling spots for $50 for 30 seconds. Wow. By June of 76, that number quadrupled to 200 a spot. In 13 months, that wrestling show went from $50 to $200 for each one of those 16 spots. You can do the math and you're you're talking about $3,200. Just the $200 spot, if it was in today's money, that's almost $1,000 for each spot. Yeah. Okay. They got (laughs) 16 of them. So, you know, uh, uh, so they're ecstatic about the growth of of what's happened with Southeastern on their television station. And there's nobody more happy about it than me. So, So let's get to the actual TV show. Uh, let's talk about what they did for me as a television set. When when I got there, I said, you know, I want to have a very fantastic set. And, and so here's what they did for me. They built me a set that was uh, 15 feet wide, 8 feet tall. It had five three-foot wide panels on mm-hmm. built on it. The panels weren't connected so that 
you could change, you could move the panels. It was three-sided. Each one of these panels had three different sides on it. So Les, all Les had to do was push a button on the floor underneath his desk, and all five panels turned in unison, and all of a sudden, you got a different set behind you. Wow. The TV station built that for you? They built it for us. Wow. They, uh, these guys were committed. They, you know, and they said, well, what yeah. do you want? I said, let's do something crazy. I said, you know, can we do something like, you know, I had a, a little concept there and they took it and just run with it. So, right. so right. now we got a set in which you're watching one side of it and it's got Southeastern wrestling logo and a big Southeastern championship wrestling all the way across it in orange. And we're in Knoxville, Tennessee, and that's the color of the balls. You know, I just made sense to put that in orange. And then all of a sudden, Les just reaches down there with his foot. Nobody ever sees him do anything. And right. he taps on this button. And that background changes to a green background that has got pictures, two feet by two foot pictures of the stars of the Southeastern wrestlers themselves on yeah. that ground. Okay. Cool. So now the third side is what was called in television chroma key. It was blue. It was just a blue background. And when you stood and looked at it, it was just a clear blue background. Didn't have anything on it. But because it was something that wasn't being done by many other television stations, it was a chroma key that meant when you put video and shot the video on there, that blue became the video. So it played in the background. It played in the background. Dude, that was way ahead of its time. Oh, way you could turn your set if you wanted to. You could have Southeastern, bam, all of a sudden you've got one background with all these stars on it. And then you turn the third one on and you've got a video there. For people now, who I, don't know, that's that's what weather guys do today. Their background is green. But this was way ahead of its time if you're talking about mid to the latter part of the seventies. Yeah, we're talking about nineteen seventy-six. Wow. Nineteen seventy-six chroma key. Chroma yeah. key wrestling background. Yeah. I mean, wow. and a three-sided set. Uh so we got this tremendous set. It was just unbelievable what you could do. And fans that sat in the studio, they look at the set and it's just blue. But when they looked at their monitors, they see the video. They're yeah. like, wow, oh, they freaked out. It's like, how in the heck are they doing this? You know? Huh. So it was so freaky that people sitting at home, they had never seen anything like this. We were, like you said, so far ahead of everybody else. It was ridiculous. So the ability to use this chroma key side of the set was so effective that Les and I realized that we could open our shows with these videos sitting still framed as the set behind the wrestlers. And uh, we could take the video from the night before. And we could open the show the next day with that video sitting there behind the set. So this television show on Saturday, July 3rd, opens up with Les, Robert, and Jimmy sitting at the set. They've got their title belts that they regained the night before sitting on the desk in front of them. Les welcomes them and congratulates them for the big win the night before where Rob and Jimmy had beat Norvell Austin and Kurt Von Steiger, and they, they had to beat them because if they lost, they had to leave Southeastern Wrestling. So in the background, while this discussion is going on, there's a still shot. It's 15 feet wide and it's 10 feet high. It's Jimmy Golden standing on the top rope 
And in the background is the grandstand with 5,000 people behind him. You can see them, uh, you know, it's amazing shot. I'm in the control room and it blew me away. I was like, wow, look at this shot. Uh, fans at home, they could never figure out how we were doing this type of stuff. So wow. at this point, Les calls for him to roll the video. And as soon as the video rolls, Jimmy flies off the top rope and across the 20-foot wrestling ring and smashes both feet in the face of Norvell Austin in slow motion. Wow. And Austin turns a flip, lands on his head. It was absolutely awesome. And, uh, you know, then the video goes to full speed. And all of a sudden, they just continue to talk, and they talk about the action that they're seeing. And once they do that, they pull the cameras back, and the director then pulls that video into full screen. And the set disappears. So yeah. you know, now you've got the video and you're just hearing the guys in the background talk about it. It was fantastic stuff. It was so far ahead of what the heck anybody else was doing. Yeah. So the video contained the three of them talking about what was happening. And then suddenly uh, in this match, the second Von Steiger. Now, you, when this match occurred, nobody knew there was a second Von Steiger. There was only one German. And all of a sudden, there's a second German that appears from out of the shadows at the back of the arena. You know, he comes down to the ring, and Mike Stallings is managing Jimmy and Rob. And he attacks Stallings, and then he, everybody, him and his brother and Norville Austin and Homer Odell, Rob and him have won the titles, but now all four of them get in and start beating the hell out of Rob and Jimmy. Four on two at this point. So fans in the studio, they respond to the video, just like it's happening in the studio. Rob and Jimmy's finished. And uh, they ask Les, did you know there was another Von Steiger? And uh, Les says, well, you know, guys, I, I heard that uh, years ago there was two Von Steigers and that one of them had retired. And he was older than his brother and that he had retired and he disappeared. He says, nobody's heard of him since. So now all of a sudden, We've got two Von Steigers, and the boys are back together again. So Rob and Jimmy, they leave the set. Les throws it to the ring. It's for the first live event. The announcer announces that Tommy Rich and DeVoy Brunson, who are going to be wrestling these next guys, and around the corner comes both the Von Steigers. It's like the fans in the studio were waiting on it. They erupted like, wow, there's that team, you know. I had never seen this team. I'd just taken guys' advice that these guys were good. And this is my first time sitting in the control room upstairs, and I watched this match, and I have just come across one of the greatest tag teams I've ever seen. These guys are fabulous. They're in and out and tagging and tagging, and wow, it was just unbelievable. But they got over in their first match. It was really amazing. And, uh, and right then I said to myself, man, with all I've got going, things are going to crank up here in Southeastern. Personality profile, it focused on the returning Don Carson and Louis Tillette. And Carson, obviously, he's no longer on crutches. And he's not on crutches because he's one of the first guys ever to get the arthroscopic surgery on his knee. And uh, so what happens is with arthroscopic, they don't cut you. And I've had the knee operations. I know how it goes. They don't cut your knee. They open a little hole in there and they stick a camera in there and they do what they need to with minimal repair time. You recover weeks and sometimes months earlier than you would from a regular knee surgery. Yeah. So Carson's gets one of these state-of-the-art surgeries and he's back ready to wrestle within a month after he gets hurt. 
pretty darn amazing, man. Him and Louis on there, they brag about how dumb Ron Wright was and how easy it was to dupe him, man, into believing that Tillet was his friend and and uh, Carson, as Carson would do, and you know Carson well enough that he tells this story, and everybody's probably heard it. A lot of people have. He tells the old story about the frozen rattlesnake and how the cowboy picked him up, you know, and and he felt bad for the poor little snake. And the, obviously, Ron writes the cowboy, and and Louis Tillet's the snake, right? And he takes the poor little snake and he puts him in his pocket, you know, and. Uh, and then the snake thaws out, and he reaches to get him out, and the snake bites him, and the cowboy dies. <laughs> so, uh, Carson made that all about Ron Wright, and Ron Wright died. <laughs> so, yeah, you know. So he and him and Louie, they have a tremendous laugh, obviously. And then uh, Les reminds him. <laughs> Les is pretty sharp. He reminds him. He goes, "You know, Ron and Don Wright, uh, y'all are wrestling them next Friday, and uh, and old Don, you know he." <laughs> He's already been bit by your rattlesnake, Louis Tillet here, you know. But obviously, he didn't die, Don. <laughs> so, so, uh, so let's continue. And he said, yeah, you guys probably ought to be very careful because you know what y'all are getting into the ring with next Friday night? You're getting in the ring with two venomous rattlesnakes. <laughs> Damn Ron Wright. And the Wright brothers are a rattlesnake. Well, the yeah. crowd loved it, obviously, and less superb. Uh, Don and them start screaming. They're mad at him. And Les says, okay, we're, we're, we're out of time. <laughs> and he closes out the segment. So Ron and Don Wright, they're wrestling on this show. I'm loading this show up. It's rating period. They haven't been on there as a team in almost a year. And uh, they went in the ring, and they just give a couple old boys a good old Tennessee dog whooping. I was and, waiting uh, for that phrase, Tennessee dog whooping. I love it. <laughs> yeah, they went in, boy, and they gave both their opponents a good Tennessee dog whooping, and the fans really went crazy in the studio. <laughs> they loved it. Bob Armstrong came out, closed the show with a win in the ring, and then he left everybody in the studio on their feet, man, when he made one of those, as usual, fantastic interviews, man. It was just another great TV and at the perfect time, man, it's in rating period and it's rating time. Man, that is big time right there. All right, this seems like a good place to take a break, Ron. When we come back, we'll find out some what Some Superstudcasts have more Friday, than one July subject. 9, Patrons love that sometimes part one that is, is a totally different subject than part two. At tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. On occasion, something timely happens between the recording of part one and part two that requires Ron to change the focus from one subject to another. He attempts to keep each Superstudcast as up-to-date with current events in the sport as much as possible, especially with the death of a major star. Something significant happened after the recording of Part 1 with Mick Foley. Mr. Wrestling 2, Johnny Walker passed away. We're proud to pay tribute to not only Johnny, but his lovely wife Olivia in Part 2 of Super Studcast number 30. Ron worked extra hard to add guests to Part 2 that had a lasting relationship with Mr. Wrestling 2, Johnny Walker. In this heartfelt tribute, you'll hear from Bullet Bob Armstrong, Cowboy Bill Watts, Mr. Olympia Jerry Stubbs, and one of Johnny's best friends, Bobby Simmons a famous Georgia referee who traveled extensively with him. We hope you enjoy part two of this classic super studcast at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. More than three hours for only $2.99. We are back on another studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. I'm David Summers. And Ron, we're at a point that you could actually tell us what happened in Knoxville on Friday, July 9th, 1976, 
that's where we were. So what happened? Well, after this TV, six days later, the TV that I just described, the opening match that night was a return match from the week before. These two guys had wrestled the week before against each other. Randy Fargo, who's no relation to either Jackie or Don Fargo, the famous Fargos, uh, he had won the match over Don Lamerick the week before, but this time this ends in a 15-minute draw. A pretty good match considering that uh, neither of these guys are, are really going anywhere. The second match was a really good match. Norvell Austin and uh, Mike Stallings. And Austin had a little more experience than Mike Stallings, but Mike Stallings had a lot of heart. And uh, Homer, outside the ring on this one, it's a 30-minute time limit deal. Homer kept pushing Norvell to finish off Stallings. Finish him off, finish him off. Uh, they really tore the house down, these two young stars, man. And this one ended like the last match had in another draw. This time was a 30-minute draw. But by golly, the fans loved every minute of that 30 minutes. Next match was a barn burner. Uh, Ron Don Wright against Carson and Louis Tillet. And you could tell Carson wasn't full speed. And believe me, I had a lot of trouble with my knees in my career. And uh, any surgery you have, I don't care whether it's arthroscopic or not, and I've had both kinds, uh, is a bad deal. But the arthroscopic is a hell of a lot better than the, than the big time. So arthroscopic is the easiest to recover from, obviously, and Carson was not as young as he used to be, and it was going to take Don a few weeks to get back to normal. I knew that, and I could see it that first night. But Louis, Louis Tillet won over Don Wright. He beat Don Wright, and the crowd didn't much care because they got to see a lot of Tennessee dog whooping during the match. <laughs> so they were pretty darn happy with, with the Wright brothers. So the last two matches of the night, uh, boy, we turned it up here. Uh, Rob, Rob and Jimmy, uh, they're defending their southeastern belts against this new team, Curtin Carl Von Steiger. And it's the first match between these two teams ever. And usually when you have two teams and they're wrestling each other and they've never wrestled each other, it's not going to be their best match. The more times you work with a team, the better your matches get. But this match from the very first night, I watched it. It was classic. I mean, wow. It was a tremendous match. The Von Steigers were brilliant. Uh, I loved them. I was like, wow, I can't believe I got these guys. And Rob and Jimmy stayed right with them. And the crowd just loved it, too. They were really into it. On the end of the match, Rob and Jimmy had the Germans going. All four of them were in the ring. And Norville Austin who had been teaming for several weeks with Kurt Von Steiger, came down to ringside. And Austin jumped on the apron when the referee was with Kurt and Jimmy. They drew the referee. You know, the referee was on the far side of the ring. Austin jumps up there. Rob went for him, reached over the top rope, grabbed a handful of his hair, and he was trying to drag him up on the apron. And Carl Von Steiger, the new one, uh, ran across the ring, hit the ropes, came back, and he hit Rob in the back with a high knee. And uh, Rob went straight backwards. Carl covered him. And the ref saw the pin, and he started to count. Rob threw his foot on the rope, but Norvell's still standing on the floor, on the concrete out there wherever the foot is, and he just knocked it off the rope. <laughs> and the one, two, three, the referee counted Rob out. <laughs> so so uh, the Von Steigers, their very first time, have won the Southeastern Championship. Ref, ref gives the belts to the champions, and the crowd is Pretty darn upset. Uh, you know, and Mike Stalling comes down. Austin is still hanging around there at the ring and grabs Austin and throws the guys, and uh, boom, all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're gone. 
But when the heels got out, they didn't leave. They just put the belts over their head and they stayed out there and paraded around on the big platform for all the ringsiders were. The longer they stayed there, the louder the crowd <laughs> roared their disapproval. I mean, and then finally Rob and Jimmy and Stalling, they just left the ring and chased them back to their dressing room. Last match of the night was the two Titans, by golly. Professor Tor Tanaka, champion against Bob Armstrong, Southeastern title on the line, no disqualification. Bob had entered the ring on the TV the Saturday before. Tanaka was defending his TV championship and against Butch Malone, and uh, and it ended up Tanaka beat Malone pretty easily, and then Homer sent a couple of other guys in there to help uh, him, this, the three of them, to beat the heck out of Malone, and Bob Armstrong came in on the on the program the Saturday before, and he broke down with some karate, and they all decided to leave. So in this championship match, both of these guys, Tanaka, who knew some damn karate himself, uh, <laughs> and Bob, you know, they both broke down in this one. And I'm telling you, that crowd went crazy during this match. It looked like to me it was a karate tournament rather than a wrestling match. They weren't throwing punches. They were just doing karate moves. There was pandemonium in the amphitheater. Uh, I was on the ringside level, back by the dressing room. It was kind of dark back where I was standing. And I watched. The referee went down and then toward the end of the match and and Bob had to knock a pin, but there, there was no ref to count him out. So Homer just climbed up in the ring, and why not? The, you know, ref's down. He can't, he's not seeing anything, and he stomped Bob in the back. And then Homer motioned back toward the dressing room for Norvell Austin, who was standing in the shadows back there, to come to the ring. And the three of them began to pound on Bob. And the second referee came down to the ring to try to stop it, and uh, they just grabbed him, threw him over the top rope, and just went back to Bob. So, you know, uh, I dislocated my shoulder six weeks earlier, but I was almost completely healed at this point. Uh, I wasn't going to tell anybody when I was well. I wasn't booked. I hadn't wrestled in six weeks. And uh, I'd not been in the ring since that injury, but it was time. You know, I'm sitting back here and watching it, and they get three on one, and they're beating the hell out of him. And so I just went down, slid underneath the bottom rope, and I tore into Tanaka, and he's been the guy that dislocated my shoulder. And then the first rep started to ring the bell to stop the match. And they just grabbed him and threw him over the top rope. A bell's ringing. All, it's, all hell's breaking loose. Bob started one of those karate comebacks on his own uh, while I was still working on Tanaka. And uh, nobody in that amphitheater. And then it was more than five. Probably 55, getting close to 6,000 now, wow. uh, was there. Bob and I got back to back and they just fed us, man. They kept coming and we kept knocking them down and the bell kept ringing, but there wasn't anybody in that amphitheater that could hear the bell. It was so loud in there. And finally they just gave up and got to the floor and went to the dressing room. Bob and I, he hugged each other and the crowd exploded. They loved it. And, uh, I was back. Yeah, that was, that was the deal. I was back. What a night, Ron. How big was the crowd? It had to be huge for this one. Yeah, it was, it was, like I said, it was, it was over the 55. It was about 5,700. It was a new record for what we had been doing uh, in Chihuahua Park. And it was the fourth week in a row that we had been over that 5,000. You know, we had the momentum back finally that we had lost on June the 4th at the Southeastern Slaughter when three guys got hurt in one night. 
So, and the great thing about it was we had a big time hill that's about to rise the next following night. Oh, that's cool. Sounds like things are getting better and better. This could be a good opportunity to get a cold drink and get seated under the learning tree. So what is up today, Ron? Well, today's learning tree question comes from a gentleman named Chris Hollyfield. And he asked, how did you get your wrestlers to behave out in the social scene, bars, and et cetera? And <laughs> did you like your wrestlers interacting with fans? Mm. And, and I like this question. You know, it makes <laughs> sense. You know, you own a company and you got some, got some areas. So, so we're going to tackle this, man. Let's rope in this first question to start with about getting my wrestlers to behave right. out in the social scene, bars, and et cetera. You know, controlling wrestlers, it can be very difficult, but to put it lightly, you know, there's probably no other athlete in any sport as independent uh, of supervision than a professional wrestler. <laughs> After all, you know, when you think about it, wrestlers aren't a part of a team. There's no coach and there's no supervision. And, uh, and they're used to making their own decisions concerning their lives and everything else. And uh, they decide who's going to train them and uh, where they're going to wrestle and who they're going to wrestle for and how long they're going to stay there and where are they going next? And it just goes on and on, you know, and that type of independence is pretty damn hard to control. To be honest. Yeah. So in my opinion, controlling wrestlers, it all started with the man at the top of the company or the owner of the territory, you know, and it depended on two things in my opinion, uh, how the owner handled himself in front of his employees, which is his wrestlers. And not just his wrestlers, but his actual employees. You have other people who work for you when you own a wrestling company. And how that owner chooses his talent. Mm. So, you know, there's two big parts to this puzzle. So, so let's begin with how to handle yourself in front of your employees in every situation. Wrestlers watch everything an owner does. I realized that early on. They watch every move you make. They want to hear your conversations with other people. And they soak all this in. They're kind of like deciding what kind of guy you are. And, and they follow the owner's example. And all of them, they need to understand that veering too far from those examples is going to have repercussions. So discipline and control comes from the top. And that's not just with wrestling. That's with whatever company you're in, whatever business you're in. Yeah. You know, that's, that's pretty much pervasive in everything. So it's not only do as I say, but it's even more important, do as I do, by God. Right. Yes. So, you know, you set the example. So this doesn't just apply to wrestlers. It applies to everyone that works for you in any capacity. And I've found this to be the case in any company, even with the ADT company. It was important and how people perceived you and the example that you set for so uh, example is what they always say. Yeah, there you go. So, and, uh, you know, you set the example and you expect the others to follow by golly. And if you make exceptions about those that follow your worst mistake as an owner is to allow somebody to do something that they should be talked to about and uh, not handle it as soon as possible. Cause when you do that, it just opens the door for, for other problems. Obviously, uh, you cannot be, uh, with every wrestler everywhere he goes, <laughs> you know, I mean, you ain't going home with him and you ain't going to the bar. With him. You're not going to see what he does in the bar. But if he knows right from wrong by watching you and, and uh, knowing how you are, 
then you don't have to be with him to influence him. You've already influenced what he's going to do in a bar and in a social setting. So I don't ever remember and all the times that I was a wrestling promoter and owner uh, having a conversation with a wrestler about almost any problem. Uh, you know, and I guess probably I was really, I was either extremely lucky or I had these guys in my crews that were older guys that knew me and they knew what I expected and they took care of these younger guys. <laughs> mm. You know, they smartened them up basically like, Hey boy, you don't want to do that. You know, you won't be here. You yeah. know, that's a deal. So, uh, they were, they were constantly behind my back, I think, keeping them straight. Don Carson is a great example of it. He was fantastic at that. I found most wrestlers would be hardworking, pillars of the community type, fine examples for their friends, their families, and they controlled themselves. So younger wrestlers was your problem if you had one. And they had to be watched. Uh, you know, most young wrestlers, they had great respect for the veterans, not only in the ring, where it was demanded, they didn't have any choice, but in the wrestling lifestyle itself. So they they learned from watching others and how they dealt with people and how they acted in bars and things like that. And the young guys that didn't have respect for those veterans and wouldn't listen, they didn't last in any territory very long. Right. <laughs> they were they were short lived, man, as a, as a wrestler. So second part of my thinking about all this was how you choose your wrestlers. And I'd wrestled enough as a young guy and then with enough guys to know hundreds of wrestlers before I ever became an owner of a territory. I knew not just their ability in the ring, but uh, I knew most of, of them, uh, what kind of person they were outside the ring. And if I didn't know, once I got to be an owner, I would ask guys that I had confidence in their opinions of guys. What, what's he all about? How does he comport himself? How does he act around other people? You know, one bad apple will ruin the barrel. That's what it says. You know, that's the old saying, right? And mm -hmm. I found that out in 1979 in the Knoxville War. I brought in a bad apple, and he sure ruined the barrel. I'll tell you that. So oh. anybody can make a mistake in judging a person's character. And in my case, in 1979, it really cost me. But in my defense, it never happened to me again. I learned a heck of a lot from it, and I never had to deal with that again. So uh, in the end, you had to trust your wrestlers. That leads us to your last question, Mr. Hollyfield. Did you like your wrestlers interacting with fans? Now, I couldn't be, like I said, I couldn't be with them all the time. And so really, I didn't have any choice. I had to trust them. So my question is here is, what kind of interaction with the fans are you talking about? If you're talking about breaking kayfabe, there was never any question about that, by golly. Uh, you know, you did that, and I found out about it, and you were fired instantly. That was the end of it. You know, and I didn't grow up a third-generation wrestler and have any doubt about how I was going to handle that. <laughs> you know, that was just, it was part of the business. I never told my own wives. I didn't smarten up my own wives. <laughs> so, you know, and I, I don't know how many wrestlers can say that, but it was ingrained in me from my granddaddy and through my dad and all the other 20 or so in my family that were in the business. It was just critical. Just take a look at where wrestling is today because of that. Yeah. <laughs> That's why we're in this pitiful, horrible situation where we don't have what we used to have. 
because there was no kayfabe. They decided that kayfabe wasn't important, mm. you know? Yeah, if you broke kayfabe, uh, I wouldn't have stopped with just firing you. I probably would have kicked your ass, to well, be honest with you. You're 6'9 and 245 pounds. I would think that might have. You, did, you probably didn't have to speak too loudly at any point. Well, you know, I mean, uh, people, you, guys have reputations. Some people knew that I had spent some time in the snake pit. And uh, <laughs> if they heard that, they, they, they thought twice about a whole lot of things. But, uh, you know, I, I really didn't. About wrestlers talking with fans, for me, that's a totally different subject entirely. I mean, obviously, for baby faces, it's pretty much a no-brainer. I mean, every good baby face probably got there because he interacts well with fans. Yeah. You know? And fans being polite, baby faces being polite to the fans was what built territories. It was what wrestling was all about. Baby faces were nice. They were sweet guys. Now, heels, that's an entirely different subject. I never liked to make demands on my heels about how they interacted with fans. I guess because I'd been both a heel and a baby face in my career. I'd seen business from both sides. I had my own ideas about being a heel and interacting with fans. I always felt that it should be the individual heel's place to make that decision. You know, you don't go to a heel and say, hey, I don't want you talking to people. You know, and, I, and the reason I say that is because uh, I also believe that uh, mingling with fans as a heel, it diminished your ability to get over. You know, <laughs> a heel wanted to uh, wanted to take that chance of being nice to the fans and not get over. He was only going to cost himself money. <laughs> I mean, he was stupid. So <laughs> that's kind of what I thought. And I might lose a little bit of money promoting him out there. But he was going to lose a lot of money in his career <laughs> because, because he's just doing something stupid. Eventually, if he kept it up, the smart guy is going to finally realize that being nice to fans when you're a heel is taking money out of your pocket and food off your family's table. Right. And if he continues then doing it after he knows that, then whatever happened to him was what he had coming. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you're going to be stupid, man, well, uh, that's too bad. Uh, I hope you're going to be all right in life, and good luck to you. Mm -hmm. So I hope that answered your question today, Mr. Hollyfield. Those questions that you asked today, they're kind of as old as the sport itself. And I bet if you ask uh, a lot of other promoters and owners, you're probably going to get a different answer from every darn one of them. I bet you would. I, I watched Don Carson interact a lot of times, and he was mostly the heel, as you know. But he could still interact with the fans. It, it didn't mean you don't talk to the fans at all. But it was it was how he interacted with the fans, and he would leave them laughing, and they they were going to be there to see him the next week. So I, I thought he was a really good example of how a heel can still interact with the fans uh, on a one on one deal and kind of keep walking. You know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, and and most of the good heels could do it. Yeah. All right. That's another awesome day, Ron. Absolutely. Well done today on Facebook. Go to the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud page and simply like the page automatically become friends with a living legend at Twitter. You'll find Ron at at Ron Fuller Welch super stud cast. Number 30 part two is now available. And I'm pretty sure you would have a few words to say about this one. It's going to be a really important show and especially to you. Yes, uh, I do. As a matter of fact, and and uh, it was just released. It's available now, 
and I did a, a tribute to Mr. Wrestling number two, Johnny Walker, who just passed away. And uh, I was really, really pleased with this one. Uh, I brought in several other guys that had all had great relationship with Johnny. And I uh, brought in Bob Armstrong. I brought in Cowboy Bill Watts. I brought in Jerry Stubbs, Mr. Olympia. I brought in one of Johnny's best friends, a referee, a famous referee in Georgia that uh, used to drive Johnny to towns and spend a lot of time with him. This tribute to Johnny Walker, Mr. Wrestling, too, has a lot of other people's thoughts and the way they felt about him as well. Uh, Johnny Walker was a remarkable wrestler and a tremendous man. And so was his wife, uh, a wonderful lady. All right. And breaking news, Ron has a new Facebook page. Since he's become an author, you can find out more there. Fans can find out everything about the new book. It's called Brutus and at author Ron Fuller Welch. All you have to do is simply like the page and you'll be all set. All right. So where are we headed next week, Ron? Well, we're going to be shooters. <laughs> we put on uh, every other hat so far. We're going to put on the shooting hat next week. Uh, and for the first time in, in today's training, uh, we're going to go back to my granddad's days, wrestling in the carnival on the valley, it's called. And we're going to return to West Virginia. Uh, we've left there months ago when we went there the first time. I wasn't happy with the crowd. I thought we had gone there too soon. It's been months since we've been there, and our television program has been running up there for months without a show. And we're going to go back next week, and we're going to find out what kind of difference was made by having those TV shows and waiting longer to go there. Uh, we're going to be moving into mid-July, and uh, things are getting hot in southeastern and not just talking about the weather. New stars are coming, and the summer of 1976 is about to explode for southeastern. The learning tree question next week is about the best day of the week to run your matches, considering when your TV airs. That's a promotional type of question, and uh, that's a very interesting one, too. And I want to thank everybody, Dave, today for joining us. And I hope uh, you all enjoyed this ride today. And uh, see you again next week. Take care of yourselves and others, and uh, may God bless us all. Another fun one, Ron. This is David Summers thanking you for riding with us today. Ron Fuller Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.